there's a lot of joys that I have in my life. Uh, one particular joy is being a, an elder here at this church and being able to preach God's word to you each week. Um, another joy of my, of my life is to be married to Amy, and I'm thankful for the 20 years, almost 21 years that we've been married. And uh, another joy of my life is to be a father. And one of the things that I have noticed throughout these years with my children is the, the sweet grace of the Lord that is displayed in the way in which we guide and direct our kids according to the word. You know, there's those hard moments as a parent when you have to discipline your children and you're doing it according to what the word of God says and your kids think that, that you hate them because you're spanking them and you're disciplining them and you're taking away those things that uh, mean something to them or, or you're inflicting pain in such a way to teach them a lesson and you're doing it faithfully according to the word of God and they don't understand it and you have to teach them that. And one of the things that we've always tried to practice is, is that when our children are disciplined and we do spank our, our children to up to a certain age and um, we always have tried to uh, spend some time after that to, to hold them and to comfort them and to, uh, to, to be with them regardless of how much they want to push us away after they've received that discipline. And eventually when the calm, the nerves and the, the, the adrenaline calms down and the pain begins to subside, there's a sweet moment there where your child begins to realize that you really do love them. And though the discipline was hard, there was a lesson to be learned. And at the very end, you haven't left the room and acted mad and fumed for the rest of the evening, but instead, you're there to hold them and to love them and to show them that it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. I love you. I forgive you. Uh, and those lessons are good for me because they teach me about my relationship to the Lord. And in those moments with our kids, they are reflecting what we are reflecting day by day as we live lives that still struggle with sin. There is a, what I would call, a daily commitment or recommitment in our struggle to our faith in Christ. Now, if you're a Somewhere around my age, or you uh, were serving in youth ministry at some point in a church, you can probably remember the era of church ministry, particularly the era of youth ministry, where there was the, quote, time of recommitment. You guys remember that? You can remember probably the camp experience that you went through where, you know, you go away from your parents and... You start the day super early, earlier in the summer than you've ever designed to wake up. And, and you spend this whole day uh, in Bible studies and outside in the, in the extreme heat. And they're pumping you full of sugar and carbs. And then you get to the, the evening time and the lights are started to, to, to be lowered. And the music is pumping and the smoke machines are going. And the, usually they throw a, a preacher up there that's barely preaching the Bible at all, but he's really exciting and he's, he's really energetic and, and he's just really ramping up the emotions of these kids. And I was one of them. And then at the end, there's a, a long uh, response time that usually 
goes 15 or 20 stanzas or verses in the song. And, and, and it's, to me, was a, now that, that I'm an older uh, pastor, it's kind of a, almost a coaxing of kids to, to respond. And, and then there was the, the, the blessed time with your youth group. And that's when, for me, I saw a poor example of what I would call biblical recommitment. Because the emotions were high and stoked and the flame was going and kids were tired and the emotion level was just overwhelming so that you could really get a kid to recommit to anything. And if you had, you know, hurt your friend's feelings five or six times during the day and broke up with your boyfriend twice or three times or found a boyfriend two or three times in that day, then clearly there was a lot to confess at night. There was a lot of things to deal with. And I watched over and over and over and over again kids make the same type of recommitment and the same apology and the same cry fest and all these things. And I'm not trying to discount the true work of the Lord in those moments. And he did work in those situations. But if we're honest with ourselves, I know that in my experience, it was 99% emotion. It was, it was not a general recommitment to the Lord. And so a response to that in the church has been the fear of using the word recommitment. So I want to kind of put that, that fear to bed today and remind us that a true biblical recommitment is just another word called repentance. That's what it is. Repentance is a day-by-day active response to the work of God in our lives so that we might change according to his word. And so in our passage today, I'm going to use the word renewal or recommitment, you might hear me say, which is just another way of saying repentance. God so moves and directs us according to the word of God that an initial response of faith in Christ in Jesus that saves us and transforms us, it is a done deal. We are saved, once saved, always saved. The Lord has written our name in the, in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And so our faith and trust in Jesus is a response to the work that he's doing in us. And in that new life, we will no longer be slaves to sin, we will be slaves of righteousness, as the Bible says. And yet we're still in a sin-drenched and corrupted earth, and we are still faced day by day with the sinfulness of the world, and we still will struggle with our old man, as the Bible says, or our flesh. Which means that although Christ has reserved a place in heaven for us, we still have work to do. Work not to attain salvation, but as we'll see at the end of my sermon in Philippians chapter 2, a working out of our salvation. In other words, we are called to be continually obedient, striving for holiness, living lives of recommitment or repentance day by day as we fall and struggle and wrestle with our sin. This is what is encapsulated in chapter 10 of Nehemiah. Now, let me just kind of uh, put the pause for a second on, on, so I can catch us up. Because I spent some time talking about the covenant. I'm going to tie the, the ribbon on the bow today as to why that was important. 
And I've chose to hold off on the, the, the final covenant, the new covenant, because Easter's coming. And I can finish out Nehemiah and, and preach on the new covenant at Easter, which is very close, so you better get your Easter outfits ready. We don't allow hats in here, so just ladies, I'm kidding, I'm joking. So we're going to spend some time finishing Nehemiah, and then we'll finally look at the last covenant, the new covenant in Christ uh, on Easter Sunday. But just be reminded that in uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, the Lord has uh, allowed the people of Israel to return to Jerusalem. They are now living in the city. They have populated the city. And they have this great moment where the, the word of God is, is once again uh, proclaimed to them by Ezra. And they, are, they have this amazing moment of revival where the word of God is literally, they are being re-educated, reintroduced to the law of God that was given to Moses at Sinai. And, and, and they're learning these things and it's causing a, a great stirring, a great reaction of obedience to what God has called them to do. And it was very much uh, something that was lost in exile because they were living in a foreign land. They had no temple to even think about let alone to practice and, 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 and allow to function and operate in the worship of Yahweh. But now the, 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 uh, those things have been rebuilt. The city has been rebuilt. The walls have been secured. The temple has been rebuilt. And the word of God is being proclaimed. And the, and the people uh, of Israel, these Jewish people that are there in the city, they are responding by the word of God and, it, and the work of God in his word. And the way that they respond is seeking to be obedient. Now, when you think back to my initial or introductory illustration, one of the things that our kids understand when they come to us in love with an apology and, 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 um, and a brokenness about themselves, one of the things that they understand is that there is a foundation there of love. They come back to us, loving us, hugging us, playing with us after that discipline. Why? Because they understand the love that exists before the discipline and after. And the foundation of our renewal is the grace of God. In other words, we repent because we have experienced God's grace. God's grace is the foundation of our repentance. This is why the doctrine of election is so amazing because before the foundation of the world, God's desire was for you to understand his grace in Jesus Christ. And because of that grace that was planned before you ever existed, and the very moment in which you would believe in that grace and understand and by faith come and accept Jesus Christ, that foundation is laid so that in your struggle with sin, you will continue to return to the Father because the grace has already been applied. You know He loves you. You know that it's discipline and not wrath. You know that it's kindness and loving for a loving Father to bring about His discipline upon His sons and daughters and not His judgment. How do you know it's not his judgment? Because the judgment was placed on the son. So why does Israel in chapter 10 
Why do they come before the Lord learning what the law has taught them and, of, and, and make this commitment to renew the covenant that they had made with God? They do that because grace has already been provided. They understand God, they understood God's grace throughout their life as a, as a nation. Be reminded in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, these famous, uh, this famous moment with uh, Moses on Mount Sinai, where the Lord, it says, passes before Moses. And there's some debate as to who is speaking in this verse. I tend to lean toward the Lord speaking. That it's the Lord passed before him and he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children into the third and fourth generation. Now, whether Moses says that or the Lord says that, Israel was instructed in the great character of God that dispels His grace and dispenses His grace upon His people. A forgiving God, abounding in a covenant love based upon His faithfulness and His grace. And so you'll remember in Nehemiah chapter 9 that that He recounted these very same words. In their confession in Nehemiah chapter 9, it was stated that Israel refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Church, we have to learn how to cherish the grace of God. This grace that allows us to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the work that He performed on the cross, is just a literally a display of this love and the character of God that has existed for all eternity. And because we understand this grace and we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then we can live such lives seeking repentance turning away from sin and turning back to Christ. The Jews knew this availability of God's grace. And we see that over and over again in their history. They failed to obey. They failed to believe. They failed to acknowledge and honor and worship. And time after time, because of the foundation of God's grace, not only did they go back, but they knew that they could go back. And so we, as the church, need to look to Christ. Know that His love for us and His people is real. Let us not forget that His grace is present and sufficient to cover a multitude of sins. Like our little children coming back to us after discipline, knowing that His grace is sufficient when we fail Him. And we will fail Him. I love to go backpacking. I love to get away and, and spend time in the woods. And one of the things that is a major consideration in your planning for a backpacking trip, two or three day trip, 
is to always be aware of your water source. When you're hiking up and down mountains, and at some point, the water that you brought into the woods, you're going to run out, and you need to have a way in which to find water, or you could be in a very dangerous situation. So you have to plan. You have to know the location of that water. You have to know how to get to that place. You have to know, you have to have some form of, of device, to, a reservoir to hold more water and be able to use that water for your survival. In church, God's grace is the water source for our Christian life. It is the living water. It is on our journey through rough and difficult times. We climb through uh, thick brush and slog, through deep mires uh, of difficulties and troubles, whether within or without. And we need to be aware of the location of finding grace. And that grace is always found in Jesus and what he's accomplished. And Paul knew this reality. He knew this reality as he preached to the Corinthian church. This well-known passage where Paul mentions that he has this thorn in his flesh, which is really widely interpreted to mean a lot of different things. I believe that the thorn in the flesh that Paul refers to is one of two things, and I lean more toward this being a person, although it could be a physical ailment as well. The reason I lean more to it being a person is because in the Greek, Paul literally calls him an angel or a messenger of Satan. And the word angelos in, in the Greek is always referring to a person. And so it's most, uh, uh, most likely interpreted that, that this person is someone that is persecuting Paul in his ministry. That he is weighing heavy on what Paul is trying to do in the Corinthian church. Maybe a false teacher within the church. But in referring to this thorn in his flesh, listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so, church, I want to encourage us that as we enter into Nehemiah chapter 10, we must understand, first of all, that the foundation of repentance and the foundation of a renewal in our relationship with the Lord, if, if we fail Him day by day, begins with understanding the immense and unlimited amount of God's grace for us. It's sufficient for our weaknesses. It's sufficient for our hardships. When you consider the grace that we find in Christ, then you will rest in Him in your struggles. Listen, when I was an enemy of God, dead in my sin, lost in my own rebellion, my heart was against the Lord. But God in His grace and His love chose to save me. He chose to redeem me. He chose to do great things through my life, not because of something that was in me, but because of His love and His perfect plan. Therefore, I know that Jesus lived a perfect life in my place. Obeying the law in every way, he did this. Not because I could attain righteousness, because I could not attain righteousness. 
He did this because it was designed for him to be willing to, to go and die upon the cross, offering the necessary sacrifice for my sin to be atoned for. And his blood as both God and man was the only acceptable sacrifice able to cover my past, present, and future sin and rescue me from the domain of darkness and God's wrath. And so on the cross, he bore the wrath of God that was planned for me, for my rebellious heart, for my rebellious actions, for my, my treasonous attitude toward God. And he bore it all in my place so that it would pass over me. His wrath would pass over me and be placed upon the Son. And on the third day, he rose victoriously so that I know too, I will rise victoriously day by day over sin and the struggle with sin when I fail and, and, and falter. And one day I will rise victoriously from the grave to live eternally with him. That's my personal testimony of the grace of God in my life and why I can live day by day trusting in that grace Knowing that if I fall, he will pick me up. So a couple questions. Do you treasure God's grace? Do you treasure it? Is the grace of God the source of joy that moves you day by day along your Christian journey, even as you fail, even as you face hardships? Is the grace of God a greater treasure for you than the earthly trivialities that you may go home to tonight? And if God's grace is a treasure, do you live in holiness and strive for holiness because of that treasure? Remember the parable of the, of the pearl of great price that, that, the, that the owner would do whatever it took to possess that treasure? You can imagine this treasure that you have. You would do whatever it would take to protect it and preserve it and to find joy in it. That is the grace of God for us. And because of it, we live for holiness. Which is why, secondly, renewal or repentance requires action on our part. And in Nehemiah chapter 10, these Jewish people set out to act upon what the Word of God was doing in their lives. They were seeking an act of repentance. And that repentance and renewal requires action. In chapter 9, the Word of God was doing a great work in them. And look at the end of chapter 9 and verse 38. This is kind of where we stopped in our last, uh, the last Nehemiah sermon. Because of all this, of all the confession that they've made in chapter 9, it culminates in verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. What are the Jews doing here? Well, let's go back to our covenant language. They are making or cutting a covenant with God. So now we ask the question, well, are, they, are we adding a covenant to the list here? Is it the creation covenant? Is it the Sinai covenant? Is it the Davidic covenant? Is it the covenant with Nehemiah? No, because as you read through chapter 10, the language over and over again in verses 28 through 39 and what, uh, in, in what Jeremy read earlier all refers back to the words that were given to Moses at Mount Sinai. In other words, 
They're not cutting a new covenant. They're cutting a covenant with each other to renew the covenant with the Lord. They are simply renewing the Mosaic covenant. Now they are back in the city. Now they are back at the temple. Once again, reestablishing the worship of Yahweh in the temple again. And they say, the law of God is leading us to renew this covenant once again with God. As we have failed him, timeless accounts throughout our history. And so this confession leads to renewal. They've reflected on their failures as people, and they are moved to change. And so in chapter 10, verses 1 through 27, these people are all listed as those who have signed this physical covenant. They've literally put it in writing and sealed it in such a way to to do a couple things that we're going to talk about. But I want you to look down with me at chapter 10, verse 29. Chapter 10, verse 29. It says, the, well, I'm going to start in verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, And enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our, uh, to the, to the Lord of our, to the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. So here they are acknowledging that this is not a new covenant, but a renewal of the covenant on their part. Because they have failed and God's grace is sufficient, they are able to re-enter in. Recommit to follow the word of God. And they acknowledge that as entering into this curse and an oath to walk in God's law, they acknowledge the, the reality of a curse. In other words, they're saying, we're re-entering into this covenant with God. We are once again uh, committing ourselves to obedience and walking in the law of God. And if we don't do that, then a judgment of God will fall upon us. That's what they're saying. A curse and an oath. Which we remind, if, if we can be reminded for a second, which is why the, the sacrifice and the slaughter of the animal with Abraham was the, the pieces were separated, the blood was uh, spewing everywhere, and they were walking through, the Lord was walking through, reminding them of the effectiveness of his judgment upon those who break the covenant. So the question we have to ask ourselves is why is Israel even alive at this moment to renew the covenant with God? Because of his grace and his mercy. They should be dead. They broke the covenant. They were covenant breakers. In the same way that we should be dead. Because of our sin and rebellion against God. But by his mercy and grace. He bestows a love for us. He shows patient. uh, And uh, patient loving kindness for us. And so we see these names in chapter 10, verses 1 through 28, as I said. All these names represent the people, the leadership. It starts, as you can see, with Nehemiah, his leadership, his sub-governors, as we might say. 
family members that were in the priestly family, the Levite family, servants of the temple. And the question we have again is why the list of names? And I would say for two reasons. Number one, for historical record. This is a a book of history. And now we have these names and these very lists, although cumbersome to say, have been the very bedrock and foundation of the the validity of the Word of God as we've proven through lists like these, the the existence of these people in history through archaeology and, and the different studies of the Bible. We've proven that the Bible is real and true by things like this, by people mentioned in lists like these. So there is a, a, a stamp of history upon this, but there's also a stamp of accountability. Why would these people be listed? Why would they sign the covenant? Because the community of, of God's people require accountability. They are signing a covenant with each other before God, saying we will obey the law. And as a community of people, we come together and we sign this document so that we might keep each other accountable to what we've committed. That's why we call marriage a covenant of marriage. It's an agreement that you literally sign the marriage document, but you speak the words before witnesses and God that you will be faithful in sickness and in health until death do us part, with a lot of other cheesy loving words that are in between. And the point is, is that that's accountability. One of the coolest weddings that I've been able to be a part of was, was uh, our church members, Jonathan and Annie, where the, the, the audience was asked to commit to be a part of this accountability in their marriage. That they would commit to play a part in watching the life of, of these, these, this man and this woman so that they might continue to walk in the accountable uh, commitment that they had made to one another. And this is what Israel's doing. Their names are on the list to be accountable to one another. And although the nation of Israel is different from the church, it's a lesson for us as the church that we would be accountable to one another. Now, unlike a lot of Baptist churches... We ask that you commit to a covenant. We have a covenant. It's an agreement as church members. We read that covenant when you become members of our church. We hold you to that covenant as an agreement as church members to do what the Lord has instructed the church to do and what church members should do for one another. And some people get their feathers all ruffled about that. But let's be honest, church membership these days is, is a lot more lax than getting a Kroger Plus card. Members come and go, there's, there's no accountability, there's no, there's no desire to walk in holiness, and there's no willingness to, to call a brother or sister out in, in rebuke of sin, and for the sake of the purity of the church and the love that Christ has impel, called us to do. But the truth is, is that these lessons from even Israel in, in, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 10 is a great example that this covenant with the Lord is a great um, example for us to have a covenant together as a church. To be the accountable brother and sister in Christ for one another. 
Think about the parable of the sheep. The shepherd knows that he has a hundred sheep and one goes missing. Well, that's about numbers. I don't want to talk about numbers. Listen, I'm the first to be kind of offended by the number question. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many people go, they come to me and they say, how many people go to your church? As if that's the sign of spiritual growth. Listen, I can do whatever it takes to get people in this church. That doesn't mean that it's a healthy church. So I'll give you that number, but it doesn't mean that my church is healthy. What makes my church healthy is when we are living as God has intended us to live as his bride. But yet the the parable of the sheep is that that the shepherd knows that there's a hundred sheep and that one is missing. And so that number provides an accountability for God's people. So we as elders of the church, we love you and we, we do number you and we do hold you accountable because we believe that it's our spiritual responsibility and we believe it's your responsibility with one another to know if you're missing, to know if you're depressed, if you're sick, if you need, if you want, maybe we can provide. To cry with you, to grieve with you, to hope with you, to to rejoice with you. These are the things that the community of believers do. This is what we commit to in our covenant. Well, the obedience of the Jews was to covenant with the Lord to be faithful to what he had commanded them to be. As a matter of fact, the, the Pentateuch is a great example of all these things that God had called them to do in ways that they would live as a community faithful to him among the foreign nations. So as we live as a community in the church, may the world see us and go, wow, that group of people is not weird, that group of people is different It makes me interested in that because they're loving and they're gracious and they're kind. They seek out the welfare of other people before themselves. So the Jews continue on with their covenant and they give some specifics that I think are important for us to see in our passage today. In verses 28 and 29, as I said, they make this overall commitment to walk in the commandments of the Lord. This is their renewal of the covenant. In verses 30, they talk about the importance of a holy family. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Be reminded that already Ezra has had to deal with this in the the returned exiles where they they were beginning to intermarry with the foreign nations. And intermarrying with foreign nations was God prohibited. Why? Because when they did those things, they gave their allegiance to foreign gods. They worshipped false gods and false deities because of their love for their spouses and their loved ones. And so as they renew their covenant, they're quick to acknowledge their need to protect the worship of the Lord and their family by avoiding the intermarriage of foreign women. And folks, this isn't a matter of racism. This is a matter of worship and the way in which God has called the people of, of Israel to worship. This is their commitment to lead their family in a lifestyle that honors Yahweh and His commandments, remaining pure among the nations that surrounded them. And young people, consider how this might apply to your life as you search for the special someone to love and marry one day. 
the people command or the people of, of the New Testament in the church are commanded to learn these same lessons from the Old Testament. It was just phrased a little different. In the book of Corinthians, Paul says that we should not be unequally yoked. Doesn't mean that you can't love and marry someone with a def- different ethnicity. It does not mean that we put away people that are different from us. Maybe they're a a different skin color or a different culture. But it does mean that you need to love someone that worships the same Lord. Being unequally yoked means that you are to commit yourself to a person who loves the same Lord that you love. You should want this in your life. I mean, imagine for a moment that you give your love to someone, young people, that's, and, and their response to you is, I don't really like your family very much. Your dad's kind of a jerk. And he looks weird. Well, you should not find that acceptable, but maybe you do. You shouldn't find that acceptable, but perhaps you let that slide. But young people, imagine if you found someone that said, I find you really attractive except for your face. I really can't stand to look at your face. Now, that would be appalling, right? You would be appalled by that. You'd be like, I'm not giving my love to these people. And yet, for some reason, throughout the generations, we are willing to commit our love to someone who do do not love the same Lord that we love. That's insane. And it's a dishonor to Christ. And the desire of the Jews to renew this covenant with the Lord was to be reminded that intermarrying foreign women was blasphemous against the Lord because it led their affections and their desires for the Lord astray. And it should challenge us as well. Don't give your love to someone who is disinterested or disbelieves in the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. His power to save you from sin and death allows you to rest easy that he can sovereignly send a partner in the same way who equally loves him and loves you. I move forward to verse 31. Not only are they renewing themselves against intermarrying foreign women, they are renewing their commitment to the Lord as people of the land who adhere to the Sabbath day. It says, If peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath, or on a holy day we will uh, forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now their commitment to the holy days, the Sabbath day was all about faith. When you live in a Uh, an exiled land, you can imagine how difficult it was to observe these, these holy days. On Saturday, you're holed up in your house, not working, not doing anything, and yet you're living under oppression of a Babylonian king and ruler who is probably forcing you to do that. And so you came in this conflict within yourselves. What do I do? I'm being forced. I'm a, I'm basically a slave. 
And now they're back in Jerusalem. Now they have freedoms. And they're renewing their covenant with the Lord. And so once again, they have an opportunity to freely practice the opportunity to abstain from work on the Sabbath. So they're no longer under oppression. But then the sin kicks in. Well, but I can make a lot of money on that day. I mean, I don't have to work. I, I need to worship the Lord and honor Him on the Sabbath. But man, I can, I can trade a lot of commerce on that day. A lot of people are still coming to Jerusalem. It's, a, it's an interstate of commerce. And people are going to be coming into the city. And for us as the people of God to, to cease to work on that day is a great financial downfall. And this takes faith. It takes faith for them to abstain from work, knowing God would bless their obedience. It takes faith for them to hold off that day from trading with those foreigners who might come in the city. This is what they're committing to in verse 31. That the peoples of the land in bringing in their goods and grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. And then look at the last sentence. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Remember the Sabbath day led to a Sabbath year. And every seven years, again, it was not a holy day of the week. It was a holy year. And if you were a farmer, this was a year of faith for you. Why? Because the Lord had commanded that you allow the land and the creation to rest. So whatever farming you did in those six years, you stopped doing it in the seventh year for a whole year. One whole year, the Sabbath year, you're giving the land rest. And even as a farmer, as the, as the crops that you had planted would might spring forth fruit anyway, you were to leave that fruit alone. So that the people of the lands that were suffering and in poverty could enjoy the fruit of your work. You're going to take a year off of work this year as an act of faith of the Lord? It's a big ask, right? The Lord's asking a lot. And here we are challenged in, in our own lives as the church to think about this and go, wow, this is a trust of the Lord. This is when our faith really conflicts with the culture. Do we really trust that God will be the, the sustenance and the provider of all of our lives? Are we willing to, to take away that work for a day to do what the Lord has called us to do in worshiping Him? Are we willing to set aside the matters of of our business and our commerce because we know that our worship of the Lord is preeminent. That our time with our family and our children should take precedence over any job that we might have. Why? Because our faith trusts that the Lord will provide. We have no reason to fear. And the Jews understood this. And we're committing once again to trust and believe, knowing that he would, he would care for them. And finally, they break out into verses 32 through 39, the function of the temple. Remember that the temple reflected the presence of God. It was where his presence dwelt on the Ark of the Covenant. 
And there they would come and they would sacrifice for the, uh, with the Lord in the temple. And they would honor Him. And, and, in, and in honoring Him, they would, they would give in such a way toward the temple. And so verses 32 down to verse 39, we see different aspects of service for the temple. The ways in which they gave money to the tithe of the temple. In verses uh, 33 or 34, it's, it refers to the, the way in which they give even wood for the offering of the temple so that the sacrifices could be burnt. They talk about the different, uh, the, the different offerings that they were obligated to give that were the first fruits of all that they had, the fruit of the tree. So that the, 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 the priests of the house of God would receive those. And this all focused on the function of the temple day by day. These acts in the temple were not busy work like your substitute teacher might give you. But instead, they were all acts of worship. Giving of our resources, giving of our time. They were all a sacrifice for the people as an aspect of worshiping the Lord. And this simple passage reminds us that even the chopping of the wood and taking it to the temple was necessary for the worship of the Lord to to commence. And so we consider ourselves as not worshipers of a building. And they weren't worshiping the building. They were worshiping the Lord in the building. Knowing that this is where God had determined Himself to meet with them. And so they enter into these acts, whether they're giving uh, their money, or they're giving their first fruits, or they're giving wood for the, the, the sacrifice, and they're doing these things as an act of their worship. In obedience to what God had commanded them to do. And they're giving it in faith. And these verses show us That the contribution from all the people are necessary, not because God needs our money, because it shows the ways in which God has ordained the temple to function. And in the same way, we, we, we must acknowledge that in the church, God uses our contributions, but He doesn't need our contributions. God could bless this church any way He wanted to. I could have an anonymous donor write a check that could allow this church to function for years on end. But the Lord chooses to use us with our giving, with our service to Him, with our time and resources and skills and gifts. God uses those things. And therefore, we offer them to Him as a way in which we worship Him. And I just want to tell you, as as you're... As your pastor here, that I'm so very thankful for you. I'm thankful because in, in the last two years, churches have struggled where we didn't struggle. Our churches, I, saw, I know of churches that, that, that folded and closed where we didn't fold and close. We, we were consistent. We were faithful together. The Lord blessed us. And He blessed us because you were faithful. 
Because you understand these truths and you are faithful to give and you are faithful to serve and you are faithful to prioritize worship over what the culture was saying. And that makes us as elders so grateful and thankful for you. And it calls us to consider what the Lord has for us. That we would be people that would consider renewal and repentance as a way in which we would live day by day. And these obligations that are mentioned here in the, in the text, these are specific ones that, that they mentioned. They didn't, they didn't recite or, or, or recall or recommit to each individual command of the Lord. They just said, we are committing to all of the law of God. And so I want you to consider in your own life the need for you to understand the grace of God and see the need for repentance and renewal day by day. And as you go to the Word of God, you will know that the Word will bring forth areas in your life in which you need to turn from sin and by faith trust in God. And that if God is going to bring about transformation in your life, it comes with a daily action on our part that must be taken. If we can take any major point away from this passage, it's that spiritual change is a daily action that is necessary for all believers and must be taken. We trust in God's Word to bring light to our sin. We trust in Christ to redeem us from the slavery and sin. And we know that He empowers us to overcome. Our response is repentance and faith. We set out to turn from what dishonors the Lord. And we make strategic steps based on His Word to bring about change. We acknowledge that God empowers that change, and yet obedience is necessary for us. So let me correct our theology in relationship to the country music scene. All of you... Carrie Underwood fans and her poor theology whereby you sing in your song in your car as you're driving down the road, Jesus take the wheel. What you are saying in those words is simply this. I'm going to let go and let God. And while I think Carrie's motives and her intentions are good and right, her theology is poor and weak. Because as the lyrics of the song go, she writes or sings, Jesus, take the will, take it from my hands, because I can't do this on my own. I'm letting go, so give me one more chance and save me from this road I'm on, Jesus, take the will. I appreciate her sentiment. And I do appreciate the themes of repentance and trust in the Lord. And I'm not trying to nitpick, but I want us to be careful that as we think about these songs and begin to apply them theologically, we understand that renewal and change does not magically appear in our lives. We don't let go and let God. We trust God to bring about change as we get to action in living for holiness. If you want spiritual change to happen, it requires faith and repentance, which are actions that we take 
as we trust the sovereignty of God. The Jews take this step of action in their renewal to follow the law of God, all while resting in His grace and finding strength in Him to change. So instead, we might sing, Jesus, I trust you as I steer in obedience toward what you command, knowing fully that I can change as I rest in Christ who has changed me. Grace has been provided. The call of repentance and change has been declared. And obedience is necessary in our lives to see fruit as we persevere to the end. Which leads me to Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now we stop there, we get into a theological difficult situation because it seems as if Paul is saying that salvation comes by the work of our efforts in this world. But don't stop there. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Your work is necessary, but only after God works in you to bring about his good pleasure. Strive for obedience. Strive for daily renewal. Trusting in Christ who has already saved you and will empower you to bring about change. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for your powerful and transformative work in our lives. God, we know the scriptures tell us that for grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And yet you call us to action. All throughout the New Testament and Old Testament, there are commands over and over again, Father, that you instruct us to do. So help us to understand our need to be people who repent and renew daily in our relationship with you. Striving to turn from sin and turn to Christ. Using the example of these in Nehemiah's day. Celebrating the grace that has been provided in such a way that we can do these things. Knowing that you don't strike us dead immediately. That you are long-suffering and patient. You are steadfast and faithful in your love toward us. And because of that, we can obey. And so, Father, now as we enjoy the, the Lord's table and these elements that have been provided for us, we remember all that Jesus has set out to accomplish so that we might work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we invite you now to the time of the Lord's Supper. It's a time of celebration of what Jesus Christ has done. If you've never taken the Lord's Supper with us, we have both elements stacked on top of each other, as you'll see. The bread and the, and the juice representing the body of Christ that was broken for our, on our behalf. The, the blood that was shed for the remission of sins. We take these things as symbolic reminders of all that the Lord Jesus has done. What he's done in us. And so we ask that if you participate in the Lord's Supper today, that you would participate as people who have faithfully trusted in Jesus Christ.
as your Lord and Savior. That you are a faithful member of our church or a a local like-minded church like ours. That you have committed yourself to baptism and are faithful to have been baptized knowing that the the death and resurrection of Christ is symbolized in that the, the lowering and the raising of yourself out of the water symbolizing your death and new life in him. And we ask you to consider what the Holy Spirit might have challenged you on in this sermon today that you might confess those things to the Lord so that you would approach the table of the Lord today in a right way. Not just for ceremonial reasons, but because you have a, a great reason to celebrate him. And so uh, in a second, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to, to bless this time. And, um, but before I do that, I want to give you a moment, a, a quiet moment of, of silent prayer. And after I pray, Connor's going to play. And as he does, feel free to come forward, take the elements back to your seat. And we will enjoy these things together as a community of believers. So take a moment now, a silent prayer to the Lord, preparing yourself to remember and reflect upon all that he has done for you. Father, your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we come now to the Lord's table as people who are aware of how we failed you. We have confessed these things to you knowing that Christ has already provided a way of escape. And we rejoice with him and celebrate in the victory that he has attained through his death and resurrection. And so we say thank you. In his name we pray.
Paul writes to the Corinthian church. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed gave thanks and broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you please stay with me?